Welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of 80s Movies, where Al and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring cinematic music treasures from the golden age of soundtrack singles. That is such a great intro. You always, I I don't know how much time you put into the intros. But <laughs> I don't know, this I one, come up I, with something goofy. I just, I, well, I, I love this one. It's like, see, I, I don't know if it really comes through. It probably did last week, but, and of course you have the Movie Day podcast, but I mean, we're not just music. I mean, we are fanboys of just pop culture in general, both you and I, and love, love the movies, huge movie buff. So it's really awesome. I mean, this particular episode, oh, yeah. pull them both in. I and mean, much like the, the, the TV themes that we did yes, last yes. last season. Right. Um, so now I'd oh, just pay you a compliment. I like the intro. Thank you. So, well, thank welcome. you very much. And we could, you know, I was thinking 80s, of course, we talked about we could do two parts of the 80s. Uh, it would be difficult to do the 70s. I think it would be difficult to do the 90s. We could always do a non-80s movies, you know, where you take all the other movies True. that didn't yeah. appear in the 80s. And- oh, well, you know, I, I toyed around with 90s, and I, I actually toyed around with the 70s, too, because at one time we were talking about doing 70s, right, 80s, 90s. Right. The 70s, I struggled. I came up with 12, um, but I can't say that I love all 12 of the... I mean, it was, it was... I was really just trying to find 12 songs right. from the 70s. The 90s was fairly easy. I mean, the 90s, in fact, I had... I had a few significant there's probably There are probably more than I'm thinking of. Oh, that, there are. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, there, there was plenty in the 90s um, going through Empire Records and singles. Oh, that's and, true. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, you have Pulp Fiction and you have, um, well, there's, there's just so much. I mean, Streets of Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, no, you're bring, right. Bring you're Boston. Right. In. But, um, yeah, no, the 80s, like like we said last week, that's the, that's the sweet spot, you know? Um, so without question, I mean, this was the episode we had to do. Oh yeah. And you know, anything. Yeah, I have a feeling this might is, be a, a popular episode. You know, we, couple skates was pretty popular. The 1991 episode was really well received. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think this one might be as well. I, I think so. I, I'm, I'm, that's our audience for yep. the most part. I think mean, we're, we make this for, and it's Gen Xers making it for Gen Xers by Gen Xers. You know, it, it's just kind of a, that that's. I think what they expect. So here, you know, being decade specific, yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, our audience is going to be really happy with, with what we're giving them. All right. Shall we begin? Absolutely. All right. I'm going to start by apologizing. (laughs) Wasn't (laughs) expecting that. Okay. Uh, This is a song um, that, well, I'm using all my guilty pleasure songs before our eventual guilty pleasures episode, because this is another one that I'm going to pull out. So you say that, but I, that have, I have so many Maybe guilty I do. pleasures. I don't, I don't know. What could it? This, this song, be? this song. There's no other late '80s song that sounds more like the late '80s than this song. Okay. There are so many awful things about it, and yet I kind of like the song. This could be anything. <laughs> 1987. I, I, okay. The film starred uh, Andrew McCarthy. You went Starship. I went Starship. Nothing's going to stop I us did. now. Oh I my. did. I did. I did. Now let me okay. let me defend it. Mannequin. Yep. Well, yeah, from Mannequin. Yes, yes. Uh, from and Kim Cattrall played uh, played opposite Andrew McCarthy. What a horrible, 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 great song. <laughs> Everything Starship did was a horrible, 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 great. Song. Yes, I'm not sure how Grace Slick went from 
White Rabbit. Right. To uh, nothing's going to stop us now. Yeah. It's that, one of the strangest progressions what, yeah. in rock. It's a, uh, yeah. I mean, good for them. They were able to keep a career afloat for three decades, but uh, what a really strange evolution well, she, well, for she them. Well, she kind of, I mean, when we talk about jumping the shark, I mean, that is like a... Yes. Premier example, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but just one listen of this song, and I find myself in the painful throes of middle school. The song was specifically written for the wedding scene in Mannequin, a movie I did see, but I barely remember, so that tells you something. Although my wife is, or at least was, a, a big fan. My wife is, too. She loves me. Back in the day. Um, the song was the biggest hit for Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, or Starship, hitting number one and staying put there for two weeks. Really? It was the biggest hit? Biggest hit. Bigger, bigger all, than all three. We built this city. Yes, it was bigger huh. than. Okay. I mean, we built the city, which was another oh. notoriously awful song. That that one's just yeah. And I can't uh, put that one on my guilty pleasures list because I don't like it. Yeah. That might be my. If we ever do a worse list, that's one I'm going to choose. Uh, yeah, it would definitely be top five of my my least favorite. Song. Believe it or not, the song was nominated for best original song by the Academy. Was it really? It was, and it wow. lost. All of mine that are nominated lose, of course. Spoiler alert. Guess what it loses to? Uh, 87. It probably lost to I've Had the Time of Correct. My Life. Correct. Yeah. Loses to Dirty Dancing. As you would expect, the video is cheesy as hell. Features Mickey Thomas uh, post-mustache. He's, he's, I think he shaved his mustache for this album. Um, he is infatuated with Grace Slick, who is a mannequin. Oh, gee, that's creative. <laughs> But she still has a great voice. What a great voice. I'm sorry. She's got one of the greatest voices in rock and roll history. I'd love her voice. Yeah. And she still has it in this song. She does. Yeah. I mean, she's, if, if we're talking classic rock, she's, she would come in at number three for me. I mean, Stevie Nicks and Ann Wilson are going to top her, but yeah. she's, she's definitely number three. Pat Benatar is top for me. Okay. Yeah. I can see that too. But um, but this is a song. I mean, a lot of songs I can listen to that I don't know. I don't think David Foster produced it, but he started the whole thing. The whole synthesized, you know, that that synthesizer was so overused, in, in the, especially in the late '80s. In the early '80s, it was used in a new wave sense, and it was kind of fun and it fit the form of music. But then it took over, you know, rock music and pop music. Yeah, and, and not not where it just kind of filled in the gaps a little bit and kind of filled out the music, but just took over the entire production. In fact, there's a song I'm going to talk about later that was um, didn't even qualify for the adult contemporary chart because the synthesizers were too aggressive, <laughs> according to Billboard. 
Wait, a doll contemporary can choose not I don't, to. Well, think about it. Some somebody has to choose why it goes on the country chart and the pop chart, well, or yeah, just the country but, chart, or what. But because of aggressive synthesizers, it was not doll contemporary enough. It was too hip for the kids. <laughs> that is bizarre. Okay. Anyway, um, th- this song just I hear it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, those mixed feelings of nostalgia and bitterness because you know those were the roughest times for all of us in middle school, and I just have it's a weird combination of like hate and love for that time in my life that's everything this song is about that's why i chose this song um ironically this would be featured in a very very good movie in 2014 a little indie that if you haven't seen you need to because it's so well done i'm just try- i can't it's, it's called the skeleton twins uh, i've heard of it, it started, I've, not, I've not seen it I've bill Hader it. and christian wig from you know snl alum right and it is, it is a drama about a brother and sister and okay. family issues, and they kind of, as adults, come back together. Um, you know, they were, I, I remember correctly, friends growing up as brother and sister, they move apart, they come back together, and they're kind of reconciling family huh. and so forth. But there is a great scene where Bill Hader's character is trying to cheer up Kristen Wiig, and he puts on this song and begins to lip sync and tries to get her to lip sync and she's very resistant and eventually she gives in and the two of them lip sync to this song. It's a beautiful scene yeah. and it, it salvages this song forever in the way that it was used ironically. In fact, I think the director had in mind originally, I don't, I don't think they even spelled out what song. It was just cheesy 80s pop song that was supposed to appear in that scene. Well, they nailed it. And the music, <laughs> so. the music supervisor went through like hundreds and hundreds of songs and chose this one. And that's that scene is just brilliant. Yeah, and no, I've, I've heard of the film. I've, I've not yeah, seen we'll, it. Yeah, definitely. I'm not sure where it's streaming these days, but okay. it's got to be streaming somewhere. Skeleton Twins. Skeleton Twins. Got really, it. really well done. I was surprised it didn't win. I think it was nominated for a few um, few award at award season. I don't know if it had any Oscar nods or not, but uh, it should have. It was really good. Very cool. All right. All right. Well, we go from what may be the worst song on our uh, mixtape to arguably one of the greatest songs of uh, all time. Um, This one, uh, and you actually named it. It was the example you gave Hmm. uh, at the start of last week's episode uh, by Benny King. Ah, yes. It is Stand By Me. Um, Originally released in 1961, it peaked at number four. And it reclined the charts in 1986, reaching number nine. Uh, Stand By Me was the name of a gospel hymn written by the Philadelphia minister Charles Albert Tinley in 1905. Uh, His hymn became popular in churches throughout the American South and was recorded by various gospel acts in the 50s. The most popular adaptation was by the Staple Singers, who recorded it in 55. It was that version that Benny King heard and he really pushed the drifters to record it, but the group's manager rejected it. So Benny King recorded it himself shortly after leaving the drifters in 1960. It gave him a solid reputation as a solo artist. And after leaving the drifters, King auditioned for the wildly successful songwriting production team of Lieber and Stoller, signing, uh, singing rather a few popular songs before doing what, what he had of Stand By Me which was just a few lines of lyrics with some humming to fill in the words. He agreed to collaborate on the song with Lieber and Stoller, who gave it a more contemporary and polished uh, you know, sound. The bass line at the beginning was Stoller's idea, and the song was credited as being written by Lieber, Stoller, and King. So he did get his songwriting credit. Um, it's a fun bass line to play. It, yeah, well, it's one of the great 
one of the one of the greatest, I would argue. This was used, of course, in the 1986 movie of the same name. The film was based on the novella by Stephen King called *The Body*, but that title uh, was a little too gruesome for a movie hoping to appeal to a wide audience. Which really isn't a horror movie. Yeah, no, it's not at all. Uh, Rob Reiner who directed the film, met the song's co-writer, Mike Stoller, at a party and convinced him to play some of his classic songs at a piano while Reiner sang along. That then um, was kind of like the, the catalyst, if you will, because months later, Reiner got the idea to use Stand By Me as the title of his film and incorporated it into the movie uh, when he heard the song played a second time at his house. This played up the friendship of the young boys, really, in the film, and, and downplayed the role of the dead body that they find, which was a good move at the box office, obviously. The movie, well, especially with Stephen King. Yeah. It was already hard enough. I don't think they even used Stephen King's name when they promoted this movie. No, they didn't. Because it, yeah. people would assume it was a, a exactly. horror movie. Yeah. Um, the movie was a hit, obviously, and propelled the song back to the charts, and it introduced it to a new generation. Um, the movie Stand By Me is actually set in 1959, a little before this song was released. The song was released in 61, so it's actually... Anachronism. Anachronism, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's close enough. Uh, when, when Reiner asked to use the song, Lieber and Stoller thought that he would want to re-record it with a contemporary artist. But Reiner said absolutely not. He wanted the original so that it fit in the era. And it was surprising then when the song vaulted up the charts uh, since it was the exact same song released in 1961. Um you know, now a hit with two generations. The song started showing up at weddings and other special occasions. It is now, I mean, it's widely accepted as a timeless classic, one of the greatest songs of rock and roll history. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see Just as long as you stand, stand by me So darling, darling, stand by me Oh, stand by me Oh, stand, stand by me Stand by me Should tumble and fall, or the mountain should crumble to the sea. I won't cry, I won't cry, no, I won't shed a tear just as long as you stand, stand by me. What a song. There's a good cover by John Lennon, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John Lennon's is... I, well, there there are literally over a hundred, oh, I know. There's, 100 there's, covers. There's, but Lennon yeah. one, of course, the original's the best. Yeah. Lennon stands out. Lennon, Lennon's is phenomenal. Yeah. Well, Lennon did the really the un, 
unimaginable. He he made the song sound like it was a John Lennon song. Right. So, which uh, is is in no way me making you know a dig at him. I mean, I, I love Lennon's version. Um, but in, fact, yeah. I, in fact, I heard that version before I ever heard the Benny King really? version. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I I just this was this is my number my second the you know the number two of of those four songs that I have total counting the alternates list so songs that appeared before the films but you can't separate the movie from the song um, you know they're one and the same and without question one of my favorite films of the 1980s it's just beautiful movie so there you go I'm, I'm going to begin this week side B with Stand By Me yeah good choice good choice um, one I probably would have included had my criteria extended beyond songs that this is my my personal criteria. If you're if you didn't listen to um, the episode last week, uh, my songs had to come from movies where the song was either written specifically for the film or made its first appearance right in the film. And I, I know why you uh, I know why you did it because that obviously helped you limit yes. your choices. Yes, but I can think of. Well, I've already used okay, two, yeah. but, but there's one in particular that is so defined by its use in the film that I would think is off limits to you then. Oh, is it one you picked? Uh, oh, it's an alternate. Okay. I have it as an alternate. It, it involves a certain boombox held high over a Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I would love to have used that song. Yeah, but, I can't. but it's, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Um, this next one was one that I, I had totally forgotten about until my wife reminded me uh, in the car yesterday when we were listening to, uh, we finished the playlist and she said, I can't believe you didn't include this song. And I'm like, I can't believe I didn't either. So I went back and <laughs> had to make some adjustments. Uh, it Might Be You by Stephen Bishop from the movie Tootsie. Yep. Uh, man, I, I was a weird kid, which I've already established several times <laughs> on this podcast. Um, this is not the kind of song that you'd think a you know, 12 year old would dig. Uh, but I did. I loved this song, and and um, I saw it first in the movie. Now another tradition I seem to be talking about my grandparents a lot lately um, was on New Year's Eve they would take the family out to a movie in the movie theater. Uh, I think one year was Protocol with Goldie Hawn. One year I, there were just a bunch of eighty films that were adult films, but appropriate for kids. You right. Know? Yep. Um, on the borderline of me being bored, but also old enough to kind of start to understand them. Okay. And so Tootsie was one of those movies that we went and saw. Oh, it's such a great movie. I really, really enjoyed. But then hearing the song and how it was used in the movie was very emotional. And then it became a hit and uh, I became a huge, huge fan of it. Even, even back then in that sweet spot, in 1982, another song nominated for best original song Oscar that loses to uh, 82. We, we actually talked about it briefly Did last we? week. I, I don't. Up Where We Belong Up, oh, from yeah, An Officer yeah. and a Gentleman, which is one that I was very tempted to include. Uh, you know, I thought about it, but I, I, I didn't. Because that's a great um, song. Yeah. Um, Stephen Bishop, actually, they approached him to, to write the song from the film, um, starring Dustin Hoffman and Jessica Lange. And he watched a four-hour unedited cut. I can't believe they had enough footage from Tootsie. Four hours of Tootsie. <laughs> to make a four-hour film. Um, uh, now, as we discussed last week, right, post-production typically uses temporary music to represent intended emotion uh, until the actual score in the soundtrack is completed. Bishop said that all of the temp music on the Tootsie cut was from, guess who? I, Kenny Loggins. Really? <laughs> so in this case, they didn't actually reach out to Kenny. Think about it. Caddyshack. 
I think was the only song probably at this point. Right. So he wasn't yet the patron saint of 80s well, movie right. music. Well, you, you had all the Loggins and Messina stuff. Yeah, yeah, but, but he wasn't the go-to movie guy. Correct. And so, um, yeah, at that point, it's kind of, he was in the minor leagues, right? He was the he was the temp music, <laughs> music from his catalog. Probably, you're right, mostly from Loggins and Messina and stuff like that. Mm. Anyway, he, he watched the movie. He was inspired then to write this song. That's the truest definition of my criteria, right, is when yeah. the artist is doesn't write the song until after seeing the film. Um, they did that with Philadelphia. They, they sent the rough cut out to a lot of different artists, Springsteen and, and Neil Young and several others, and, and they wrote there. In fact, um, Neil Young's is excellent. Obviously, the boss's is excellent, and those kind of competed to be the lead single hmm. uh, and both wrote the songs after, after watching the movie. Anyway, uh, the song is actually, you know, by itself. What I love, too, is when, when artists write a song for a movie, but then they make it, uh, uh, I don't say generic enough, but, you know, what, what am I saying? Generic has a bad connotation. Yeah. It makes uh, it uh, open enough to interpretation beyond the movie. Right. right. It, it's, it stands alone. Yeah, stands alone. Because yeah. there's a song on my alternate list that definitely does not do that. And so he wanted to, to make sure he did that. And so this song is kind of told from the perspective, uh, and this is a great idea. I don't know why. I guess there are some songs, but that uh, include this, but of a man deciding to finally make a commitment and settle down with the woman he loves, right? Um, this man has, you know, probably dated for a long time and different women. And he finally realizes that he loves this woman. And it can be kind of scary when you decide to spend the rest of your life with one person and throughout the song and not being a lyrics person, but throughout the song, it's interesting hearing his perspective, basically realizing, Hey, this is, this is the thing. This is, this is it. This, you can imagine after the conclusion of the song, he decides to go uh, pop the question. Right. Uh, in addition to this song's success in America in the early 80s, it's pretty much disappeared, I think, for most people. It's a song that Xers, when they hear it, they'll be like, oh, yeah. But it's not one that pops up on 80s you know, Correct. satellite radio very often. Um, this song found huge popularity in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> Not only at the okay. time, but, but its popularity peaked in the 90s. Really? And Stephen Bishop has no idea why the song is so revered in the Philippines, but he's played there like 11 times. That's <laughs> wild. And he's, 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 he's a superstar in the Philippines because of this song, still to this day. I don't even know. I, I, <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. Still trying to wrap my head around how they have four hours of footage of Dustin Hoffman and drag. You know, I, I just um, it is what a great movie to think about. Oh, it's, like, it's a fantastic movie. I was thinking but, when I was working on my notes, I'm thinking, is that one that's not going to age well today? You know, because of transgender issues and so forth. And I think I think it. I haven't watched it in a while, but I think it will stand up okay because really, it's about a, a, a man learning to love a woman by being a woman. If that makes sense, not right. not not a, not a 
true sense. Right, yeah. No, no, I don't, no. I don't want to say that, but acting the part of a woman, right. he learns to be more sensitive in, in what it means to, to be a good partner in a relationship. Well, and, and the most unconvincing woman in cinematic history. <laughs> I mean, even Mrs. Doubtfire had more authenticity than whatever. Right. <laughs> um, now, it's a, it's a great film. I love Tootsie, but I, that's that, a song I forgot all about until you named it. I mean, it's it's you're right. It's... I, mean, I remember the song. Right. I mean, I don't need to hear oh, it. Oh, it's so but, beautiful. And I almost include, that's the one that got bumped for um, Against All Odds. Of course, okay. they're very different in tone, right. and, and, and one's a breakup song and one's a commitment song, but they're both both ballads. Yeah. Huh. No, I, I didn't know where you were going with it. At first, I thought it might be Arthur's theme, Christopher Cross, but... That's um, one I'm hoping you have. I expect you to have it. I didn't I even put my ultimates because I, I was sure you would have do it. Do not. Oh have my gosh, Arthur's it's not going to make it. I should have just put it on there. No, nope, mm. do not have Arthur's theme. Love that song. Um, I do too. But, but that's here, right? That's in the same vein. Yeah. Um, no, nope, I do not have Christopher Cross. Shoot. Well, we'll have to make part two. <laughs> There's plenty of songs to do that. Uh, all right. So this was, um, of course, last week I, I added an alternate. Um, I've had the time of my life, and I said I bumped my number six to this week. This would have been number six, um, but for side B, it's my second selection. It is by Los Lobos, Mm. and it comes from the original soundtrack to the 1987 film La Bamba, and the song is La Bamba, in case you were not Richie Valens, another non-original. Right, but this one is, of course, a cover, uh, and it was recorded for the film so this would have actually fit your criteria technically no because it my criteria was it had to be written oh, for the film written or written for the film, film or I had made its first appearance in the oh, film oh yeah okay so an artist so, might have been demoing the song but never released it okay so until it, it the would film. not have made oh this would definitely not <laughs> interesting. have interesting okay um yeah and I, I remember yeah you said written not, not performed um well La Bamba in fairness is a traditional Mexican folk song uh, popular at weddings and other celebrations. So technically, this is a song that Richie Valens did not write. This is a song that dates back hundreds of mm. years. Um, it was a, it was only a modest hit for Richie Valens in fifty nine uh, in nineteen fifty nine. Actually, his biggest hit was Donna. Um, actually, but when Los Lobos recorded it, uh, when they covered the song for the eighty seven film about Valens's rise to stardom, uh, their version became a massive hit and it popularized the song with a new generation. Um, they, they far outperformed Valens' original on Billboard. Uh, based in L.A., Los Lobos formed in 1973, actually. I actually saw them live. Did you? They opened for U2 in the Joshua Tree concert. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Wow, that's a pairing I would not have... U2 does that a lot. Like, Kanye West opened for U2 in his Euro- on like way, way long time ago. Really? In, in his European huh. um, leg. Oh, yeah, they have that's- lots of... That's kind of cool. Interesting yeah. opening acts. Um, yeah, yeah they, they formed in 73, and they released their first major label album in 84. So there was an 11-year uh, you know, uh, break there, or not break. What's the word? Gap? Thank you. There was an 11-year gap between the, the formation of the band and their first album. Um, that album earned critical acclaim and a following for the band on the West Coast. According to founding member Louis uh, Louis Perez, the the reason Los Lobos got involved with La Bamba with the movie was because they were asked directly by the Valens family. Uh, Richie Valens's mom and his sisters had to give their blessing to the filmmaker and director to make the movie, 
and they agreed uh, to, to allow the movie to be greenlit, but only on the condition that Los Lobos record any updated versions of Richie's songs. So by then, Los Lobos had picked up a, a little speed. They had, they had a couple of critically acclaimed records, and they had a couple of songs that were played on the radio, but they, they really didn't have any big hit. Only you know the, the Latino community were familiar with them. Uh, so for Los Lobos, while they agreed as a favor to the family, their involvement propelled them, like Fallon's, to stardom. Uh, Perez said it was an honor to be involved and to honor Valens' le- legacy. He said, uh, this young Chicano kid really pioneered. I mean, how bold was it back then in 1959 to take a Mexican song and make it into a rock tune, a rock arrangement, and sing it in Spanish? That was pretty damn brave. Direct quote uh, from Louis Perez of Los Lobos there. This was the first song uh, with lyrics entirely in Spanish to reach number one on the Hot 100. Uh, was Los Lobos' cover. And, you know, Los Lobos, they write their own songs and they, they cross many musical genres. So when La Bamba became their best-known work, it put them at risk for typecasting, obviously. Guitarist Cesar Rosas said, uh, we didn't want to slick our hair back and wear puffy sleeves. It was important that we kept true to our vision as a band. So, making sure they followed their own path, Los Lobos used the financial windfall from the song to finance an album of traditional Mexican songs called La Pistola y el Corazón, which was released in 1988. With that release, they redirected their frustration with something that was completely different, different than would be expected of a band who had just had a huge hit. They didn't want to chase that hit and come up with a La Bamba 2 in other words. So they, they put out a record of traditional Mexican music with a couple of original songs on it that they wrote, something they'd always wanted to do. And after that record was released, journalists from all over were writing how Los Lobos committed commercial suicide. And to some degree, it was true. They, they threw a wrench in the machine that you know brought it back to, where, to what they were all about. Um, but no, I, I found it really, really kind of touching that you know they, they got involved because Richie Valens' mother asked very specifically for them to to cover the songs. Um, and yeah, Valens, he, he didn't hit that high with, with the track. It was a it was a tough 20 hit, I believe. But Los Lobos, they took it to number one. It's a good movie too. That's the era where they started making a lot of like rock and roll biopics. Yeah, that's... A lot of them were made for TV, but then a lot right. of them were cinematic. Yeah, the only, you know, the only one that I think predates this is the Buddy Holly story. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, which was Gary Busey, of all people, playing yes, yeah. Holly. Um, but yeah, this one, and, and it, it was Lou Diamond Phillips. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was his 
debut essentially um he went on of course to young guns and some other films but yeah um no it is it's a great great performance brian setzer is in it he yeah. plays uh oh i'm trying to think um eddie cochran yeah and uh marshall crenshaw plays buddy holly right in the film so right. yeah a no, great movie all right good choice your turn all right gotta gotta put this song on not only is it because it's the queen of 80s pop but the readers of billboard magazine voted this the number one song of the 1980s and it wasn't even a single what? in america wait billboard the readers of the billboard readers voted this song the number one song of the 80s but it wasn't a hit it was a hit but it was oh. never released as a single in the u.s okay i'm i don't know where this is going the song was featured in Madonna's Desperately, Seek, Desperately Seeking Susan. Into the Groove? Into the Groove. Really? The readers of Billboard named this the number one song of the 80s? They voted this the number one song of the 1980s. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I like the song. I love Madonna, but I... Well, here's the story behind it, oh, right? Yeah. So okay. the reason, it had the same problem that Crazy For You, which I couldn't include because we used right. that for our couple's case. Well, okay, I'm, I'm yeah, going to yeah. interrupt you just for a moment. Yeah. Into the Groove was never released. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm telling you right now. I'm, I'm telling you the story right now. Oh, I, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> I'm literally getting to that. Okay, okay I, <laughs> so I had sorry. This, had the same problem that Crazy For You had, okay? So when, her, her, when Like A Virgin came out, and Like A Virgin, I believe, was the first single, Right, and that was was that first? It was either that or Material Girl. Might have been either. I might have been Material. Might have been Material Girl, but yes, it was, and that was a huge hit. Well, she had um, starred in a small part, if I remember correctly, in Vision Quest, uh, and she performed Crazy for You, which I probably would have included over Into the Groove had I not used it for a Couple Skates episode. Right. Um, they were afraid about you know saturating the market with Madonna, especially as a new artist. And I think they did release Crazy For You and they were very, very close, but they didn't want to take the thunder away from her album by releasing this other song. Okay. Same thing happened, same album. Although now she's to like single number four, which was Angel. And now the record company said, no, no, we're not gonna release anything from, from your movie because it's gonna compete with your single from Like gotcha. a Virgin. Gotcha, okay. So here's what she did. On the single of Angel, on the flip side was the song Into the Groove, hmm. which people felt was the stronger song, and radio stations started playing Into the Groove. They started playing the B side just as much as the A side. Well, honestly, it is, it's a much better song than Angel. In so. fact, I believe it was number five. I think Angel went to number five, but here's what's disputed. Thousands of people admitted that they bought that single for Into the Groove. So Angel didn't really go to number five. A combination of Into the Groove and Angel went to number five. So it was a, for all intents and purposes, it was a double-sided A, a double A-sided single, really. Well, but, but, but usually it, the, but it, the record company has to declare it right. no, no, a, no. a double yeah. A-side, and they didn't. And so it was never, so it never actually qualified for the top 100 singles uh, chart because it's not a I had, single i had no idea that it had not been released now in the, in the uk it was released as a single they, they went about it differently there but yes yeah, so that's there was a video that was again tied in with the movie but radio stations loved it and played it and the reason why it was such a hit was because you know dance music w was really starting to kind of oh, yeah. you know disco was was over right and so electronic dance music no disco was soul based the new dance music in the 80s of course was more electronic based and it's becoming more and more popular especially over in europe 
that's coming popular in America. And Madonna was able to capture that feel of, of dance music, which is usually pretty repetitive uh, and not as melodic, and write a pop song with that same sensibility. And it was that perfect marriage of the two that really propelled her. And you can dance. the song i remember liking the song when it came out i love madonna right i'm an unabashed madonna fan right and something i didn't readily admit at the time especially when i started to get into alternative music but i continued to to buy i was a closet fan in the late 80s continued buying music to me there's a big difference between the album you know true blue and starship uh, yes <laughs> amen. Huge, amen both yes. are pop but there's a huge huge difference you know both are slickly produced and, and very much made for the masses but madonna was something special um, we talk about covers a lot on, on, on this episode, and there are covers, and then there are covers. You have to, well, it's going to be on our mentioned songs now at this point. You have to check out Sonic Youth's cover of Into the Groove. I didn't know Sonic Youth had a cover of Into the Groove. It is, they call it Into the Groovey. <laughs> okay, and they sample some of actual the actual original song from Madonna. Huh, very cool. It's kind of a slower, guitar-based Ode to the song. Really? And it's very weird in a very, you know, cool Sonic Youth kind of way. Yeah. In fact, you know, listening to it this week, I listened to it a few times just to kind of get it in my head. And um, it's almost two different songs, even though it's the same melody, same lyrics. But it's almost two completely different songs. What what album? By uh, it was just a, it was it was a song they recorded for some type of compilation. It didn't appear on. Okay, so it's not. Okay, it's not on a studio album. It was a project, was gonna, one of those gonna, projects. Songs. Okay, I was going to say I'm going through their albums in my yeah. mind and I, I can't place it. So yep. that makes yep. sense then. Yeah, it really has become its own. It became its own entity. Huh. Um, but it's uh, it's a really really good cover. So if you haven't heard it, check that out. Very cool. All right, that's from nine. I get another 1985 into the group by Madonna. I, I had no idea it had, it had not been released. So. Not officially. It went through all the motions, right, of a release single, but officially it was never, and voted the number one song of the 80s. Hmm. Interesting. I, not what I would expect to be the number one song but again, again it, Billboard readers, but it's... it's Maybe the reason 85 is such a, a year is because, you know, it's easy for Xers to, at least for me, to distinguish between the early 80s and the late 80s. What? Well, yeah. And the early 80s, like I said, a lot of experimental stuff, new wave, these new artists kind of coming out for the first Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson. Billy Joel, of course, finds a second life in his, in his 80s Joel phase. And then, 
course, the second half of the eighties were really overly produced. David Fosterized, yes, uh, hair band starts to come in, whatever. But in the middle there, you had that sweet spot that had elements of both, had a foot in both camps, correct. And maybe that's why that's the sweet spot. Could be, I, yeah. Eighty, I mean, eighty-four to eighty-six. That maybe even eighty-seven. Yeah, part of eighty-seven. Yeah. I, in fact, my next song comes from eighty-seven. Um, yeah, and that just the middle of the decade. I remember music was so diverse. You know, I, you had such a a smattering of, of such different styles, and yeah, by by the late eighties, it was all. It's it's just not. It was all packaged a little too neatly for me. It was. It was manufactured music. I mean, there's great music yeah. being made that I'm talking about music that charted. Right. Yeah. Incredible music being made in the late '80s that did not chart. Right. But in yeah, America. everything on the charts. In fact, I was just looking at the top 20 songs this week in '89, and I I mean I know them all. I own some, but most of them that I own are on compilations of some kind because it's just not. It, it it's just a totally different vibe from the early 80s. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, if right. you just go by, okay, so if you just go by original song Oscar winners, right. all right, just run down them real quick so you can kind of quickly see the evolution of music, at least, okay. you know, in this vein. You have Fame, that starts out, 1980 was the winner in Fame. Correct. 81, The Best That You Can Do from Arthur. We yeah. just mentioned that. Up Where You Belong, up, sorry, Up Where We Belong in 82 from Officer and Gentleman. 83 was Flashdance. Okay. From movie the same name 84 i just called to say i love you yeah well we'll forgive them for that one 85 <laughs> say you say me which, which i kind of dug that song yeah I, I i've always liked lionel richie i don't know that that should have won the award that year but it's yeah it's okay then uh in 86 was take my breath away from the top gun soundtrack yeah. from berlin 87 we've already established was i've had the time of my life from dirty dancing 88 was Here's the most obscure song on the list. Uh, Let the River Run from Carly Simon yep. off Working Girl. And then 89 also appeared on one of our earlier broadcasts, Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid. Yeah, um, yeah it's – you can see the progression without question. I um, I don't know. I I just called to say I love you. How, <laughs> how that one is just beat. Well, it beat against all odds, Footloose, Let's Hear It for the Boy, and Ghostbusters. Now, I can see how Footloose and Let's Hear It from the Boy might have split votes because they're from the same right. movie. Uh, and I can see Ghostbusters not winning. Well, yeah. The fact that against <laughs> all odds did not win, that is a crime. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, Andrew Moore, yeah, it's just the Academy. Yeah, I mean, we, we, that's a whole other We forgot another song from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, actually, this was Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. Shakedown? Shakedown. Yeah, yeah it's Part 2. Bob Seger. Yeah. Um, All right. Okay, well, here we go. My, my next track, uh, my next selection, um, is by The Bangles from 1987. Another one that wouldn't qualify under my criteria, right, yeah. or I would have included it. Yeah. Uh, it's from the Less Than Zero original soundtrack. Um, the, the Bangles were between tours, and they were actually very busy when they were asked to contribute a song to Less Than Zero. Um, with no time to write something new, they decided to cover A Hazy Shade of Winter, which they they had played on stage soon after they formed in 1981. A Hazy Shade of Winter, of course, was written by Paul Simon and originally recorded by Simon and Garfunkel uh, for their 1966 album, Bookends. The song was released as a single with For Emily, Wherever I May Find Her, and the original peaked at number 13 on the Hot 100. Um, the Bangles' uh, cover did much better than Simon and Garfunkel, though, and it's one of the few cases where a cover of Simon and Garfunkel did better than the original. 
As Bangle singles go, this was only beaten for chart performance by Walk Like an Egyptian and Eternal Flame. Only two songs that, that beat it in terms of uh, success and on the charts. The Bangles rocked up the song, giving it a modern production and more urgent sound. They used all four of their voices, which uh, also gave it a, a richer sound as well. are from LA of course and they were generally a hit with Southern Californians from their very first album and speaking of Southern California music culture the Bangles are largely credited with minting the Paisley Underground movement which is part of Django Pop yeah you know which yeah. is your bread and butter Paisley Underground uh, is a musical subgenre which included groups like the Dream Syndicate Green on Red and, and the Long Riders among others uh, the movement was a backlash against the anger and nihilism of punk rock and heavy metal, recalling instead an updated version of the positive hippie music of the 60s, uh, but with a harder edge. It, it kind of makes sense. As early Gen Xers, um, you know, they, they were the very first children of the baby boomers, we all were, and getting nostalgic for mom and dad's love generation and looking to cultivate that in 80s music, but also updating it with power pop and garage rock. So notable artists such as Prince, would have approved and contributed to this particular movement. The Bangles guitarist, Vicki Peterson, has said that coming up with the song's riff was tough because Simon and Garfunkel's original, of course, performed on a 12-string acoustic. She said it was a struggle to figure out how to play it so that it sounded just as cool but different. And the answer was to rock it up, but it wasn't easy. Also in the original Simon and Garfunkel version, the bridge is twice as long. So when Vicki Peterson met Paul Simon, she apologized. She, she asked his forgiveness for cutting the bridge in half. According to Peterson, Simon was very gracious. Um, AM radio fans almost can't hear this song as an aside without thinking of ghosts and UFOs because the Bengals version serves as bumper music for Coast to Coast AM. Oh, yeah. The radio talk show uh, that runs through the wee hours of the morning uh, focusing on paranormal discussion. If I ever had to drive overnight, I always hope to catch it. Yeah. They rerun old episodes. Oh, it, yeah, it's... it's it, I'm sorry, it's hilarious <laughs> to listen to. Um, Coast to Coast AM, started by Art Bell in the mid-'80s, was initially a call-in political discussion show before Bell tired of that genre and switched it gradually over to paranormal discussion. Uh, the show is now, if you're unfamiliar with it, an anti-intellectual <laughs> carnival of the occult, conspiracy theories, oh, Bigfoot it's, sightings. It's like probably you know, yeah, the, the roots of QAnon or yeah, something. Yeah, doomsday predictions. Uh, it's all manner of niche speculation, but... Uh, 
No, there you go. Well, my next one was, you know, Jim Steinman's song, Holding Out for a Hero from Footloose. Uh-huh. And I will, I will go with, you made the argument for Footloose being iconic. And, well, and we don't have to. No, 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 I, I'm not I, even arguing with it. Because, again, this song, I toyed with putting it on my list or as an alternate. Uh, I just love the fact that, I, this is an example where I love to tell people, you know this is a Jim Steinman song. And they're like, what, the guy with Meatloaf? I'm like, yeah. Um, think about it. Think about Meatloaf singing this song. And all of a sudden they go, oh, oh my gosh, it's the same song as everything Jim Steinman ever wrote. Well, but both of Bonnie Tyler's huge hits were Steinman. Total Eclipse Total of the Heart. Of no, the it's a heartache, wasn't it? That's when she was kind of being oh, I forgot about groomed as a country artist. I forgot yes, about that one. Total Eclipse of the Heart. Um, but then if you think of like Making Love Out of Nothing at all from Air Supply, these were all Jim Steinman oh, yeah, songs yeah. Uh, yeah. post-Meatloaf. Uh, that were all great songs, but basically all the same song. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. In fact, the piano part on this, which if you listen to the rhythm of the song, and I know this was intentional, um, it's like riding a horse very fast, you know, the galloping. And uh, I guess Jim Simon was, was demoing it on the piano for the movie producers to the point where his, his fingers actually bled on the piano because he was playing so hard. Yeah. Really? Anyway, uh, I, will, I will not choose that one then. Um, that'll go on our alternates list. I will choose one from my... Alternates list, which is getting slim. I will go with. Yeah, Steinman. Wow, you're choosing. Steinman, another big one was It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Celine Dion. Oh, yeah. He's, he's. Yeah, he, but you're right. He he. Every Steinman song sounds like a Steinman song. And he song. sing on Total Eclipse of the Heart. That's him singing Turn Around. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. correct. Okay, so I'm going to go with. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to go with another Brad Pack movie since we're on the topic. Again, from 1985. Okay. Uh, there are two songs from this movie I could have chosen. One's an instrumental. I decided to stay away from instrumentals. From yeah, I, I didn't go there. Um, <laughs> some people, regular listeners of the show, may be saying, why in the heck would Dave pick this? Because he is not a fan of David Foster. And that's not true. I don't hate David Foster. I might hate him for what he eventually did to Chicago. Uh, I might get annoyed at the fact that you know he oversynthesized so many things in the 80s. But he's a talented guy. Yeah. He just got carried away with keyboards. you know. Um, but here's an example where I like David Foster, too. Cause one, one of them I didn't include, um, Stealing Home, because it's a pretty obscure uh-huh. movie from the 80s. Yeah. And, um, but he's all over that soundtrack. Um, <laughs> this movie, which I think was probably before... The scores are almost identical. I'm talking about St. Elmo's Fire. John Parr, huh? I did not go with the love theme for St. Elmo's Fire, which would have been the David Foster. Right. Which I could have, because I, I, I enjoyed that. But uh, I went with John Parr's Man, Man in Motion. Motion. Yep. yep. Do you have that one? No. Oh, okay. All nope. right, good. Um, the song, and, and David Foster did produce this one as well. Uh, the song was specifically written for the film uh, about post-college life. Uh, but the lyrics... Not only do they not have anything to do with the movie, they're not even neutral. The lyrics are about a completely different event. <laughs> they really are, yeah. They are about a Canadian paralyzed athlete who rode around the world in a wheelchair raising money for spinal cord research. Uh, John Parr was so inspired, I guess he had seen something on television, that he wrote the song for this young man, which, by the way, brought huge awareness to his cause, and he ended up you know, raising millions and millions of dollars and going to, you know, dozens, several dozen countries uh, in his quest to raise money. Yeah, yeah. So the song itself, you know, is, is, is for the movie, but really the man in motion part is, is about this uh, uh, person who's raising money. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, what was the individual's name? I can't I, remember. Yes, I can't remember. Had name. to look that up later. Yeah. The song went to number one. Uh, it actually features, the recording features uh, members of Toto, which makes sense because a lot of them are studio musicians. Ario Speedwagon and Mr. Mister. 
Really? Yeah. So it's kind of a little 80s super group there. Huh. I recorded that song. I'm down to one alternate, so we'll see if I make it through. I'm glad I added that extra alternate. Well, you don't have this one, okay. I know for a fact, yeah. because we discussed it already. Oh, good. Here we go. Um, you knew it was coming. Featured in the 1985 John, John Hughes film, The Breakfast Club. My next selection is Don't You Forget About Me. Second in the Ringwall trilogy. By Simple Minds. Uh, the song is so associated with Breakfast Club that uh, it's often used in movies or TV shows anytime they reference the movie. Often with the parody of the iconic ending shot where Judd Nelson throws his fist in the air, which honestly is perhaps the most famous freeze frame in movie history now. Um, Keith Forsey and... I don't know. The end of uh, Karate Kid might. Yeah, maybe. Or or even that you know mutual punch between Rocky and Apollo. Yeah, that's another right. freeze frame. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, anyway, sorry. But <laughs> regardless... You can't make a claim like that and not have me think about other ones. I, so. I, I, granted, no. <laughs> I, I, I apologize. <laughs> Keith Forsey and Steve Schiff, uh, they wrote the song specifically for The Breakfast Club, so this one actually meets your criteria at yes. the very least. Uh, Forsey, who also co-wrote Shakedown for Beverly Hills Cop 2, which we just talked yes. about, and the title song, The Flashdance, What a Feeling, uh, was in charge of the music on this film as well. Together, uh, they wrote a few other songs for the film, uh, including Fire in the Twilight by Wang Chung and Didn't I Tell You by Joyce Kennedy. Don't You Forget About Me, though, was the only hit from the soundtrack, but it was a huge one. It, it went to number one in the U.S., of course. In The Breakfast Club, uh, the five high school students with very different personalities spent a Saturday together in detention and find some common ground. The question is, will they remember their time together? and act differently around each other when they return to school, right, and face peer pressure to act their roles. Uh, some dialogue in the film, when they bring this up, gave Forsey the idea for the title. Now, I just want to say on record that The Breakfast Club is a film that could not be made today. It, it just couldn't. Why? Because today, in Saturday school, especially unsupervised, all five of those teens would be on their phones. Oh, They would not be true. talking that's true. to one another at all. They would all be isolated on their phones. Well, no it's, pretty, it's pretty easy fix here. All you'd say is the, um, the principal turns off the school Wi-Fi. Yeah, or now you or, have Breakfast Club. Well, but or he makes them put the phones. Uh, that I, that would have to be the better choice because yeah. they they don't have their data. So, right. um, but yeah, I, but unsupervised, realistically, not taking their phones from them, they'd all be on their phone. They would not talk to each other. So, I 
Actually, yeah. I kind of like that. If it were a modern breakfast club, it's even more poignant to have them put their phones away and talk. That, that's true. You know what I'm saying? That, that would be that's more true. impactful today to have the you know, the principal collect their phones. Yeah. And now they're forced to communicate, which they're not used to doing. Interesting. I don't know you can remake Breakfast Club. It's too much of a classic. Well, I don't think you'd want to try. No, but it, it, you <laughs> so, could riff on it a little bit with, yeah. with modern No, and it's scenes. true. Yeah. Um, well, Simple Minds, you know, they've been around for five years, and they developed a strong following in England when this was released. It, it's very similar to OMD. Like we said, um, John Hughes picking up the European artists exactly. that we don't know yeah. over here in, in America. Exactly. The, the song was much more bombastic and radio-friendly than Simple Minds' previous material. Do you know who turned it down? No. It was originally offered to Billy Idol. Was it really? And he turned it down. I did not know that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, when when Simple Minds recorded the song, they alienated some of their core fans, uh, but gave it, it did give it gave them a, gave them rather a huge hit in the U.S. and it was by far their biggest hit. Uh, it's one of the few Simple Minds songs that they did not write themselves. Um, in fact, you know. I, they didn't want to record the song, frankly, um, because one, they didn't like recording songs they didn't write, and two, Jim Kerr didn't like the lyric, uh, especially the line, vanity, insecurity. Hated that line. So why did the band record it? I thought it was vanity is security. Have I had that wrong the entire time listening to yeah, it? Yeah, no, it's vanity Oh, it makes more sense. Vanity is security. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense than vanity and security. Nope. Vanity and security. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the band didn't want to record it. They did not like that line. They didn't write the song. So why did the band record it? They simply changed their minds. They met with John Hughes, who gave them a private screening of the film. And that put the lyric in better context. So... Uh, Forcey visited them in Scotland. They got on well, and while there, he convinced them to give it a go, and they recorded the track in just a few hours at a studio in London. Won't you come see about me? I'll be alone. Dancing, you know it, baby. Tell me your troubles and doubts. Giving me everything inside and out and love strange, so real and The song received a ridiculous amount of radio play, partly because it was played on both rock and top 40 stations. It continues to get played on classic rock, modern rock, even top 40 radio stations as a solid recurrent with a huge recognition rating. Um, When songs are tested by stations to determine if audiences will like them, this consistently does very well, which keeps it on the air. Um, So yeah, we we already talked, you knew this one was coming from me. Um, I'm... And what now? Power of Love, I nixed just because I was sure you'd have it from right. the get go. Right. Why? Why you said I was kind of surprised you left this one off. What oh, because sure? it's it's just so obvious. So okay. But you're right. We we need to include those two. Yeah. Um, well, here's something for you. Did you know that Molly Ringwald 
released an album of jazz standards yes, I did in 2013. Know that. I did know that. It's a really interesting. I don't. I can't say that I particularly like her voice. I I, I love jazz, but I was kind of. I really wanted to like it, and I just kind of didn't. Mm. But but on the album, the album is called Except Sometimes. By the way, and I'm bringing this up just to throw it on the alternates list primarily. But on that jazz album, she features a cover of this song. Oh, interesting. She actually sings Don't You Forget About Me as a jazz standard. Hmm. And it that works. It's the only track on her album I enjoy. Okay. Because um, I'm not Check a fan of her. Her voice just, it, it didn't, as a vocalist, it, it didn't do much for me. But it's a really interesting take on, on this song to hear her sing it uh, in a jazz style. Um, but... Yes, Simple Minds. Yeah, notoriously still kind of hates the song. Yeah. It's it's um it's kind of like let's say an American in American Idol, which I don't watch anymore. I guess it's still on. But I always felt like artists um, now maybe maybe Carrie Underwood has kind of gotten beyond this, but so many artists end up winning the show, which gives them the opportunity to show their talent to the world. But then I feel like their career is always tainted because they're the person from American Idol. Like they carry that around with them all the time. Mm-hmm. And so you see bands like Simple Mind in a way that the the popularity of the song. Now, I know they were popular in, in Europe as well, but the money that they generated from the song allowed them to continue to pursue their music any way they saw fit for the rest of their lives. It did. Okay, so which is a great thing, and, and it also created a brand new audience for them in, in America, for, for most Americans. And yet... It's become this song that they kind of hate, and they're kind of you know tied to Breakfast Club. So yeah. it's just one of those sacrifices you have to make sometimes. Well, and you know it, they're not a one-hit wonder, which no. a lot of people again. And they had another big catch- hit, "Sanctify My Sanctify Yourself." Right, was a um, huge. That was American big, hit. and so was "Alive and Kicking." Alive and Kicking. Alive and Kicking yeah. was a number three uh, hit from uh, their next album, "Once Upon a Time." Um, yeah, I mean it did. You're right. It, it was. It gave them the you know, the ability to to do what they wanted and to just, they found a new fan base too. So, but yeah, they they, they do. They like Los Lobos, this. they were able to do what they wanted to because exactly. they made a lot of money from a song they probably wished it wasn't always associated with it. Right, yeah. No, agreed. All right. No, so. it's not, no I'm not, I, I love the song. It, it is overplayed. It's not one oh, it's I normally, very, yeah, it's very overplayed. I don't put on for that reason anymore. I save it for whenever I watch The Breakfast Club, but, which was on TV a couple weeks ago. I actually caught again, so. And I, again, it, I'm always fascinated by watching movies from the 80s to see if they age well. We've already discussed like Revenge of the Nerds definitely does not age well. Animal House has some troublesome scenes, but not as bad as I expected it to be. Karate Kid still works great. Um, this was um, this is one that still still holds up pretty, oh, pretty well. Yeah. There are there are moments like you know when he's kind of literally verbally assaulting her sexually. That was uncomfortable then, and now is just really you yeah, know, but inappropriate. It, but I wouldn't. Well, but I wouldn't say it's unrealistic. Not unrealistic, especially just, for, it, for it his wouldn't, character. It wouldn't appear. I don't think in today's no, no, it version of it. Um, so, but it, it's I don't know. Especially you know, given the era, I think it's it was perfectly yeah acceptable. You know, for how it was used. So, yeah. all right. Well, you mentioned Flashdance, and so let's go to Flashdance. Okay. Of course, I can't pick Irene Cara because yeah. I use that for our dance episode. So you went. I went maniac. maniac. Yeah, I think. and okay. I chose maniac too because it's a great story. So I'm kind of going back and forth between my alternates, although I would have ended up probably using it anyway. Um, I had to, to put it on for its story. So 
this is one of those songs where the artist may have some demos or material that he or she is working on, right? And it's approached by a studio to offer up something they may have for a movie. Well, I guess his, Michael Sembello's wife sent in a bunch of demos to, um, I think it was Phil Ramone, actually. Phil Ramone was the music supervisor in Flashdance. So uh, sends in a bunch of these demos, and he's going through the demos, and he comes across one called Maniac. And he loves the song, but he said, we need to change the lyrics. Turns out she wasn't supposed to send that one in. That wasn't one of the ones he wanted to send in. He had actually written it. <laughs> he had actually written it after watching a horror movie that I, you may know as, as a horror aficionado called Maniac, which oh, yeah. came out in the early yeah. 80s. Yeah, it's really bad. Um, and <laughs> I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's not a good film. <laughs> right. You know, he, well, see, he, well, he, I guess one night he watched this, and then he wrote this song called Maniac. Uh, and the working lyrics, which, by the way, the song featured a cat-killing psycho, <laughs> the lyrics went something like this. He's a maniac, maniac, that's for sure. He will kill your cat and nail him to the door. Yeah, that's fitting. <laughs> and, and, and so um, Phil Ramone said, yeah, we want to use this song for Flashdance, but uh, these lyrics <laughs> aren't going to work. So, of course, uh, he um, went ahead and, and allowed them to to rewrite, which the lyrics are very specific um, to the movie, a small town mm-hmm. is a steel town girl, and right. dancing and so forth. Um, the song went to number one for two weeks, and it was knocked out of number one by another Phil Ramone production, Billy Joel's "Tell Her About It." I, I was going to say it had. It, I, that was my guess. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, Flash Dance earned not just one, but two Best Original Song Oscar nominations. Maniac lost. <laughs> Sorry, Nem. I'm not going to pick any winners here today. And I th- we already talked about Irene Karras Flashdance. Right. Uh, in fact, this is the one I alluded to last week. Maniac ended up being disqualified from the Best Original Song Oscar nomination because when they changed the lyrics from a cat-killing maniac to fit the film, they said it was no longer an original song. It was an adapted song. Oh. Even though it had not appeared in any... See, I disagree. If it had appeared on an album, yes, I would agree with the with the Oscar, with the Academy. But the fact that it had never appeared anywhere until the film, to me, qualifies it for being a best original no, song. I got you. Now, is this the one, too, that has the assault on, on sense that makes it not a doll contemporary? No, 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 not yet. So it's going to be your 12th? And final selection. Correct. That I can't wait to hear what song can't. <laughs> it's be really a, not. It's not the bad. It's not even that assaulting. It's just what, funny what, that they, they thought the time. I wholly expect it not to be. That's right. why I'm, I'm looking forward to that story. Finally, with the uh, the, the bits. Um, finally, with the beats per minute of 159, and I said, I talked about what other song was. Oh, was, if you uh, leave, if you leave. I don't know if that one was 159. Then I might have I had the number 159 stuck I in my. I thought it was 120. 20, but I could um, be wrong. Let me go. Let me check that out now because I'll go. Yeah, it is 120. Yeah, so I was going to say, I thought that I saw 120. Yeah, my, my bad on that one. Sorry. Uh, maybe we'll um, get letters here from that. But anyway, with the um, very fast pace of 159 beats per minute, this song became a huge, huge staple for a new tr- fad all across the country aerobics classes.
Uh, speaking of 80s and Gen X and aerobics, if you have not checked out physical on Apple TV, you may not have Apple TV. A lot of people no, don't have Apple TV yet. Um, Apple TV has produced a few really, really, really good um, shows. The morning show is excellent with Steve Carell and Jennifer Aniston. Um, kind of a Matt Lauer, a fictional Matt Lauer type situation. Um, but physical is really good about a, a woman um, in the early 80s who is struggling with an eating disorder and becomes obsessed with aerobics. And it's also about empowerment, taking control of her own life. She's kind of a housewife that's delegated to, you know, traditional housewife roles. And it kind of empowers her to become a, a strong woman. So all 80s. It's like Stranger Things dripping with 80s. You know, they've recreated the 80s aesthetic, but not too much. Not to the point where it's like Greece, where they've, you know, made everything plastic 50s. Right. Uh, it, feel, it, it feels pretty authentic as if you were to go back in time, you know, to... Uh, it's early 80s, very early, so it has a lot of hints of the 70s bleeding over into it. All right. That's my song. Okay. Very cool. All right. Well, now I I have two songs left, um, and I, I need to go to my alternates. So I'm looking at my list of alternates, and they are they're eclectic, to say the very least. Um, I don't want to run down them yet, so I'm trying to figure out... Uh, and I'll run down them before I make my final pick. But I think what I'm going to do, because we just got done totally th- trashing the, the, the late 80s. Uh, so I'm going to pick a song from the late 80s. Um, this is one I, I really wanted to include, and I just it, it had to be relegated to my alternates list just because I didn't have a place for it. Um, certainly doesn't sound like anything else uh, released that year. Um, it is going to come from one of my favorite, favorite films. I mean, as far as romantic comedies go, this one... Some chances are? No, not chances are. Okay. Uh, it's from When Harry Met Sally. Again, another one that wouldn't fit my criteria. Right. No, you, you couldn't have used it. It is a jazz standard, obviously. Um, Harry Connick Jr., right, wasn't exactly a household name prior to the release of the film. Um, but after this soundtrack album reached the number one spot on the U.S. jazz billboard charts, that all changed. Um, Bobby Columby, he's the drummer for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, actually. He was a friend of director Rob Reiner, second time Rob Reiner plays a role here, uh, Benny King being the other one. Uh, Columby is the one that recommended Harry Connick Jr. for this soundtrack. And when Reiner listened to the tape Columby gave him, he was struck by how much Connick sounded like a young Frank Sinatra. Uh, Reiner wisely agreed to have Connick Jr. record all music, all music for the film, including big band arrangements for But Not For Me, Don't Get Around Much Anymore, I Could Write a Book, and my next song selection, which is, of course, It Had To Be You. Um, Connick Jr.'s vocals perfectly fit the moods uh, throughout the film. He is in turns reflective, romantic, sentimental, and and whimsical. Uh, His musical performances, I think, were an integral part of bringing Harry and Sally's love story to life on screen. And the movie soundtrack was released by Columbia Records in July of 89. The album soon reached number one on the Billboard Jazz Albums chart. It also reached the top 50 of the top 200 albums chart. Um, Connick toured North America in support of the album. He won the Grammy that year for Best Jazz Male Vocal Performance for the album. The album then went on to be certified double platinum. Now, Here's the thing. I, I remember the song receiving a lot of radio airplay. 
I mean, it was on the radio constantly. I also well, it was on VH1 a lot. I don't know if it was on MTV. Well, I was or just I was just gonna say I remember the, I remember the video in heavy rotation on VH1. Uh, I don't call it on MTV, but VH1 no, VH1 had become the adult contemporary version. Right. And but I remember it being on the on radio constantly. So maybe I remember it on adult contemporary stations. But I was surprised to learn this song was never released as a single, never. That surprises um, me too. Yeah, it had to be you. Uh, it's a killer track. Never releases a single, so it never charted. Um, but you know, here's the thing: I get so I don't I don't dislike Michael Bublé, but I get so frustrated by millennials constantly just you know hyping Bublé. Connick came first, and Connick did it so much better. It had to be you. It had to be you. I wandered around and finally found the somebody who could make me be true, could make me be blue, or even be glad just to be sad thinking of you. Some others I've seen might never be mean might never be cross or try to be boss but they wouldn't do for nobody else gave me a thrill with all your faults i love you still it had to be you wonderful you it had to be you if you are one of our younger listeners and you know Buble, you love Buble, but you do not know Harry Connick Jr., you need to do yourself a huge favor and pick up a copy of the When Harry Met Sally. Start with When Harry Met Sally, but then move on to his second album, We Are In Love, from 1990. 91 would have been Blue Light, Red Light. I mean, it, it's just, um, you know, he, he is just phenomenal. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised if you're a Buble fan by what Harry Connick Jr. has to offer. And I wanted to throw him into our my, my 12. I, I could not fit him in. So he is a definite here for my alternates list because I'll tell you what, when Harry Met Sally remains to me one of the greatest films of all time, it is hands down my favorite romantic comedy of all time. There he goes, my, my number 11. So I don't know where it's going to fit in uh, in the sequence, but... Well, I don't have to use my last alternate, but I'll talk about it quickly. It was a song that I originally had on my list for a very long time. It was finally uh, exchanged with, I forget what, but um, I love the song, but uh, the lyrics are very, very specific to the plot of the movie, so it doesn't really stand on its own very well lyrically, which doesn't bother me because I'm not a lyrics guy, you know, but it's by Tina Turner Uh from 1985, from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. We don't need another hero. We don't need another hero. From the third installment of George Miller's post-apocalyptic vision, Mad Max, a film in which Tina Turner not only appears on the soundtrack, but uh, plays a role herself. Uh, The first role that she plays since she was uh, the acid queen in The Who's Tommy. Uh, The song is a bit of a power ballad, referencing in the movie specifically. The video also ties into the film where Turner appears as her character and entity with her chain mail garb on. Uh, The ending of the song includes a, a children's choir. Um, which recorded their part at Abbey Road separately from Tina Turner. And, uh, yeah, it it earned a Golden Globe nomination. Didn't win, 
Didn't win again. Guess what it lost to? Lionel Richie's Say You Say Me. Um, I'm instead going to go with the assaulting keyboard yeah, I, that I'm, kept it off the I'm adult contemporary charts. Now, let me just preface this by saying. You're killing me. Why, why the suspense? <laughs> if you're going by 80s <laughs> movies, okay. some people might say, why didn't you choose something from Xanadu? And I will say, well, we two of them were off limits. We already, what? Because we already, we already did Xanadu and Magic, didn't we? We did Magic. Did we do Xanadu? Did we not do Xanadu? Oh, maybe, maybe you did pick it for something. I maybe, maybe either, either way, either way. I already, I know, I know, we used Magic for yes, Magic. We'd already chosen Magic, but and to me, even though technically it's the 1980s, Xanadu feels like a 70s movie to me. It has that 70s vibe musically with the yellow, you know, just. I don't know. It felt like like late disco era. I to think me. I know where you're going. Maybe. Where am I going? Are, it, is it Olivia Newton John? It is Olivia Newton John. Twist of Fate. Yes. <sighs> I love this song. I do too. <laughs> it's, I, it did not make my list, but I love this song. I do too. Yes, 1983's Twist of Fate from a movie called Two of a Kind, which most people have forgotten by now. It was a vehicle to reunite Olivia Newton-John with John Travolta yep. after the Grease success in the late 70s. And uh, yeah, it was some movie about Death and Angels and yeah, Heaven. And I don't recall. It was based on like Heaven Can yeah, Wait. Don't recall. Earlier film. Don't recall the movie being particularly good. Yeah. I mean, it flopped, if I recall. Uh, it made money. Well, it made money on the pretense that they were together again. Yeah, it Greece, made money but, enough, but yeah, it wasn't. But it was, it was not, become a classic. Yeah, it was not lasting. Right. So. Um, the the song is pure 80s, early 80s gold. Um, again, you have these David Foster-esque it's not David Foster. He hadn't kind of really gotten to the point where everything was. Uh, this is, th- these are the fun synths as opposed to the overused synths, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, under the really, really, the melody is what I love about this. A great, great sweeping melody. I'm, I'm a sucker for melody. I don't care what kind of music it is. It can be pop, rock, country, you know, heavy metal, which usually doesn't lend itself to a lot of melody per se. But I'm a sucker for Melody and this song has it all um, enough for several songs. Um, the song went to number five. Um, it would later be featured on the season two finale of Stranger Things. Otherwise, yep. I think most experts would have forgotten about it. Probably um, because, of course, when you think about Olivia Newton-John in the eighties, you think about physical. Does it? Yeah. Um, she also had another song from this um, soundtrack from Two of a Kind called um, uh, "Living in Desperate Times," which I almost included because I like that song a lot too. But I went with Twist of Fate because it's just, it's so good.
that is my last pick. Yeah. No, I I love this. You know, this is the closest she ever came to actual rock. Right. I mean, I'm not suggesting it's a rock song, but no. this is the yes. this is the hardest. Well, she that's it. It was too hard for the doll now, contemporary. I charts. <laughs> I, okay. Now that it dun, makes dun, sense. Dun, 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 now, yeah. Um, yeah, because in my mind, I, this whole the entire second episode <laughs> that, that we've been doing here, I've been wondering what song is to. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to keep you in suspense. Well, no, I, I just that piqued my. I I couldn't imagine. I, I don't know, um, but no, I great song. I I love the tune. I it never even made my list. I mean, I just frankly I forgot about it. In fact, I, um, of all the songs I listened to this week while I was preparing, I listened to this one. The longest, the most. Yeah. Huh. Just doesn't. I hadn't listened to it in forever, and I wish I had because it's so good. Yeah. All right. Did you go over your alternates? Uh, not yet. I'll, right. I'll do that now. I'll, I'll, the alternates that I'm not going to use. I had "Take My Breath Away" by Berlin from the Top Gun soundtrack. Um, I kind of, and I, I like Berlin, and I don't dislike this song. It's very synth heavy, very synth heavy, but it's it sounds unlike most other songs of the era mm-hmm. i mean it, yeah. it, there's a haunting melody that uh, it, it's they do some fascinating synth, things. but it's not overproduced exactly it, and they do some fascinating things with it frankly for berlin i like no more words better which is from the vision quest soundtrack but i kind of put this as an alternate just because i did i i felt top gun should be represented but in the end it's not going to make my my cut no so. no more words was more new wave this is more adult contemporary exactly yeah um I also had Slave to Love by Brian Ferry. That, folks, would be from the Nine and a Half Weeks soundtrack. Brian Ferry actually, he wrote and and recorded the song for the movie, but the movie was shelved. It took two years in the can before it was released. So in that time, Ferry released it on his own album. Um, So a lot of people don't associate it as being, you know, soundtrack specific, but it it was. It was written for the soundtrack. Um, And it's a great tune. I, I, it was Brian Ferry's highest charting solo work. It, um, you know, it, it's just, I don't know, it's just that that particular ambient sound that Ferry brought, especially to Roxy Music oh, in, yeah. in the early 80s, you know. Um, so it's great stuff. I also had In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel because nothing says I love you like a boombox. Extremely iconic for the 80s. It is. Yep, um, that's and, the late 80s. That's a great, of course, it's Peter Gabriel. Yeah. You know. And I, I feel really bad that, this, that it is not the one I'm going with because I feel in many ways it probably should be. But um, in your, we'll find a place for In Your Eyes on a, on a future episode, I'm sure. But it's, The only reason I didn't pick it was because it was on so before right. it was used yeah. in the movie. And I, I love the tune and yeah, say anything. And it's not a John Hughes movie. A lot of people think it's a John Hughes yeah, movie. No, it's, it's not. not. It's and Samuel's Fire is not a John Hughes movie. Correct. Um, so those, oh, one more. Sorry, I also had Goonies Are Good Enough. By I had that on my list at, at one point. Yeah. Cindy Lauper. It's just, I, I love the spirit of it and what a great movie yeah. to represent the 80s, but it's not that great of a song. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I actually had left it off. Remember when I said I'm coming in with more than I usually do? Yeah. I added that one after the fact because I just, I, I don't know, I was really afraid we were going to match a lot. Um, and we did, but not as much as I thought we would. So, um, but that's the only, I, I needed, I wanted just one more for some padding. So I threw it on there. The one that I'm going to go with, the, my final alternate, um, this was the theme song to 1987's iconic, The Lost Boys. Oh yeah. Um, from G. Tom Mack, 
who at the time went professionally by the name Gerard McMahon. Um, and, you know, he wrote this song after being, being given a, a script by Gary Lamell, who was president of music at the Warner Brothers Film, Warner Brothers Film Studio. Um, McMahon, I'll just use the name he went professionally, uh, went by professionally at the time. McMahon usually looked at a cut of films before writing music for them, as most musicians do. But the Lost Boys script immediately connected with him on a personal level. At the time, he was living in New York City, a place he described as a, quote, Gotham-like vampire hell in very dark times, unquote. And for that reason, he connected, um, you know, with the story that he read in the screenplay. So the song's title is Cry Little Sister. Um, and it started coming together in the artist's mind within, within just a half an hour of reading the, the screenplay. Was that a single from the album? No. Oh, not, okay. So you, no, you, you were even, you're even choosing songs that weren't yeah, this technically was, hits. Yeah, okay. This was not released. Yeah. Um, Boy, I'm glad I didn't keep that in my criteria because my list would have been even bigger. How'd you choose from songs that were not hits and songs that were written before the movie? It movies? was not easy. My, wow. You know how, I'm, when I make my list, the first one, I brainstorm everything I can think. This for this particular episode, I had like 140 wow. songs. I had that the soundtrack I, that I whittled down to in the end. I thought you were going to say Lou Graham or NXS or or no. uh, the Echo and the Bunnymen. Yeah. Oh well, I, Echo and the Bunnymen's people are strange. It's fantastic. Yeah. But no, I, this one to me is just iconic. Um, so and you know what? He he put it together. Mike Maneri provided a hypnotic beat that kind of ties the tune together. But McMahon wrote the lyrics in just a couple of hours. He recorded the demo. Here's the what what is so fascinating to me. Despite appearing on the soundtrack to The Lost Boys, the song's lyrics do not specifically reference vampires. Uh, two days after cutting the demo, he received a phone call though from director Joel Schumacher, who told him, "You nailed it." The theme to The Lost Boys is perfect. I can't believe you wrote this without seeing a frame of film. McMahon, as it turns out, always insisted that he had seen, uh, that had he seen footage of the film first, he probably would have written an entirely different song. But his instincts were kind of spot on. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he said, I didn't want the song to be about vampires or specific to them. I wanted it to be about the longing for family from a rejected youth's perspective which I went through myself and that many of us have felt that long is something I believe everyone can relate to on some level. The last fire will rise behind those eyes. Black house will rock. Blind boys don't lie. Immortal fear. That voice so Here's the thing. If I didn't get to it on this episode, then this was definitely going on my Halloween yeah. episode. But I really wanted it here. Um, 
and that's the only reason in your eyes is not making the cut but i just i love this song it's it's just so haunting yes, and it it's so it's it's just dark but it's it's at the same time very beautiful especially with the children's Did chorus they use it in the trailer i don't remember i don't think i don't remember but yeah when the children's chorus comes in yeah. and they, it's just it it's it's the stuff of nightmares but it's also just it, it's beautiful so i yeah i'm going to go cry little sister is my final cut and that would be all right my, my picks this week we have our, our 24 songs and now we need to sequence them yeah i'm looking forward to this so we will be back right after this all right and we are back and uh you know you'd think it would be easy to make a a, a mixtape of these songs because they're all within 10 years of each other yeah they're all contemporaries but well except for the few oldies but it it's it was one of the more challenging yeah uh mixtapes um still not sure we got it right but it's I mean, we can always reserve the right to change it. Well, we could, but I... I mean, this week we could listen to it and tweak it later and then just yeah, change well, it. I think it's... But I I think it. I think we're good now. Okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, if we, if we listen and we decide later, but I, I'm looking at it and I think... I think it works now. Um, yeah, well, let's go with it. All right. Um, all right. Uh, we begin side A with The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the News, and that goes into I Can Dream About You by Dan Hartman, followed by Maniac by Michael Cimbello, into Twist of Fate by Olivia Newton-John, If You Leave uh, by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, followed by St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion by John Parr, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship, Against All Odds by Phil Collins, Stand By Me, Benny King, La Bamba by Los Lobos, Into It Might Be You by Stephen Bishop, and we end side A with I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens. Side B begins with Into the Groove by Madonna, Into Footloose by Kenny Loggins, Somebody's Baby by Jackson Brown, On the Dark Side by John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, The Heat Is On by Glenn Fry, Into Donkashane by Wayne Newton, then it had to be you, Harry Connick Jr., Hazy Shade of Winter by The Bangles, followed by Cry Little Sister by Jared uh, McMahon, Don't You Forget About Me, Simple Minds, Into a View to a Kill by Duran Duran, and we end this week's mixtape with Purple Rain by Prince. I th- I, no, I think that's going to be good. Yeah. It's tough because we think about the movies, too. We think yeah. about the music and the movies and what the movies represent. And Right, yeah. Well, and, I mean, there are some dark themes, right? You know, and then there are the light, whimsical. You know, it's yeah, it's just really. Maybe we just t- tell everybody to hit random. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. <laughs> listen then, to it. Then you don't have a mixtape. Then you, have, you just have. I know. Then I you know. have a mix, which I is know. not quite the same. No, I, I like what we did. Um, it, it's just you have some guitar rock, you have some dance, and you have some. We don't. We don't have a lot of slow songs, which right. I think is key. We have we had like three genuine ballads, and when you have that few, it, that that's where you run into the issue. But you know what? We're gonna sh- make up for those slow songs next week. Yeah, we are. I'm, it's gonna be a pretty slow week. Well, you know, some of my duets are more upbeat, though. I have a few. Not not, not a lot. Yeah. I mean, there there are definitely some slow. 
ballots. Uh, and folks, yeah, next week, <laughs> our, our theme is duets. Uh, it's going to be all, uh, you know, pairings. Um, and it, my, my list is really interesting. Um, I haven't made my list yet. You haven't made it yet? No. Um, I, I have some that are fully expected. I have some that I'm betting a lot of our listeners have never heard. Um, so I, it's going to be... Are there any constraints on the criteria this week? Is it just it has to be two people well, I'm, primarily singing? Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, what parameters I've set for myself so far. Um, it has to be two, not three, not more, not three or more. Um, they have to... I. For myself, because here's where I ran into it, I'll be honest. I was going to include something by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. Okay. But as I was listening to it, every one of their songs, I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. the album. Oh, yeah. Um, either one of them sings, you know, right. basically individually, and the other provides some kind of background right, vocals. Right. Or the two of them sing in unison every every word right. of the lyrics. Okay, a whole notes thing going on there. Yeah, and to me, that's not duet that's they're either singing every song or yeah, every, they're harmonizing either harmonizing yeah that's different um so i took them out and i decided that yeah for myself you have to have like even distribution and they have to it doesn't have to be a back and forth but it has to be both both parties have to have significant weight right in the lyrics right they sing. you can't have what about someone come in and just sing in the bridge of a song and out that's not a duet though right that's just a well to me, that's not a duet. To me, that's no, just an appearance, a guest yeah. appearance. Yeah, more or less, yeah. And they had to have a, a more significant yes. part. Okay. Um, like, um, you know, the the other. Well, I was going to give something away. I don't want to give something. I don't want to tell you any of my songs, but um, as an example. But but it's yeah, I agree. It needs to be more than just the bridge of a song. I mean, they, they need to play an, a more active role. The other thing that I've set for myself, and you don't have to follow this, is I'm not choosing any duo that were a duo. Right, no, I get Meaning, you. Meaning, Indigo Girls, if there's a song where they have a duet, it doesn't count because exactly. that's the whole band. Yeah, yeah. Simon and Garfunkel, no. Hall and Oates, gotcha. right. no. Sonny and Cher, no. I mean, all of mine are two parties that... Um, now the one exception I have Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. I'll tell you that. No, oh well, yeah, that's. But I but, expected you to have that one. But Marvin Gaye was Marvin Gaye, right? You know, and and you know Tammy Terrell. Yeah, they they did duets together, but she was not the principal. You know, she he had a, a life outside of that that relationship. Um, but all the rest of mine are part. You know, two people that really. Some of them are just really unconventional pairings, even. We escaped um, this week with not having to hear Peter Cetera and Cher sing from Chances Are. Are we going to avoid them next week? Um, no. <laughs> no, I, no I, do not, I do not have them. I was just thinking, hmm, Peter Cetera and Amy. Oh, you. We already did that. We already did Peter well, Cetera no, and Amy Grant. Well, no, because we replaced oh, it. Oh, that's I right. Glory Love. That's right. Um, I didn't think, I'm not going to add it because my list is done. I'm not going to play anymore with my, <laughs> with my list for next week. But I do have some that are very upbeat, though. Um, so they're not all slow, but the majority are slower. So you're right. It's going to be very different from... It's a, it's a couple week. of skate, part two. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Um, but no, I, I, I'm really happy with my list. So I'm curious what you come up with. Yeah, I, um, I just, I haven't even really started jotting anything down. Yeah. Um, but no, duets, um, 
that's pretty much ready. I just need to finish some background. Basically, um, our, our schedules are, are going to get a little bit complicated. I'm, I'm going to go on vacation. Then I come back for a week and I go away again. Then I come back for a week and Dave goes on vacation. So we're, we're trying to double up and to speed through some of these episodes for you so we have them in the bank uh, in the time that we're gone. Um, so we're doing double time and it's, yeah, it's a bit overwhelming at times, but we'll, we'll keep the episodes coming for you. And, and then what's After Duets? After Duets is supposed to be the artist spotlight. Oh, yeah. Um, but we we can flip if you, you know, I, doesn't matter to me. No, it's all good. Um, okay, well then, after duets, it's the Weird Al Yankovic Artist Spotlight. We're going to give you some novelty, um, and we're going to focus, here's here's the thing, Weird Al, his original material is just as amazing as his parodies, but we are going to focus on his greatest parodies. So, what we feel are his, the best of his uh, parodies. That, that will be after the duets. We're going to play with some Weird Al. Um, so yeah, that's 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 right. what is coming up here in the next several weeks, and I don't know, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, that's that's the goal. Perfect. Well, that's all for this week, folks. Yep. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side.